0: Welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Dustin Pendle, Dr. Philip Lancaster, Dr. Brian Lubbers. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Brad. morning. Happy to have you guys with us and happy to have you listening as well. As always, if you have questions, thoughts, things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at bci.ksu.edu. And we've got several good topics we're going to talk about today. Including hay waste and how to manage your time when you're both working in town and working on the farm. Talk a little bit about overseeding legumes and the importance of that at this time of year. And then Dr. Luber is going to fill us in. We talk, we hear people talk about navel ill or joint ill. <laughs> this is that's one of the things that we'll talk about that happens at this time of year as well. Before we get into that, one of my one of my sons is on the Scholars Bowl team in high school. And as you guys know, those, they go around and they have different contests, or trivia questions, basic facts that you're supposed to know. He came home with one the other day that I did not know, but I figured with this esteemed panel of experts, you guys would certainly know the answer to which mammal has pink milk. It's really, right there on the tip of your tongue. I know yeah. it, it is. Uh, and and oh no, wait! I know, Brian. I know. Not talking about. We're not talking about disease. I you can't know, I go <laughs> that route.
1: I, I know, because you get chocolate milk from brown cows, right? So you get pink milk from pink cows.
2: Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Brian, yeah, I, I'm gonna get. I'll guess something. I'll guess beaver. Something weird. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, it, not not a lot of people would probably milk beavers, so nope. that could be a fair guess. Dustin. <laughs>
3: uh i don't know i honestly it's a mammal you say yeah (laughs) yeah i'll narrow the field (laughs) uh it's a mammal i wasn't gonna say like like fish or something i don't know Uh, fish are not mammals
0: uh i don't giraffe close you're close i and i know you were thinking african it's a hippopotamus and or a hippopotami, which I had no idea. So you guys are, are the same boat as I was as far as knowing which mammal has pink milk. But now you know, if that comes up again later today, you'll be spot on with your with your answer. So as, as we think of kind of back to, back to our topics here, and one of the things we talked a little bit last week, Philip, about feeding practices and how we feed hay and the potential, damage to areas of the pasture I want to flip that around I wanted to ask you and Dustin about when we think about how do we minimize hay wastage because hay wastage can be kind of a big deal at this time of year if we're talking about feeding round bales.
1: Yeah Brad and so there's there's you're going to have some wastage no matter what but there are some ways to try to manage it and depending on what your situation is there are different feeders that you can use so um, there's some research out there that looks at uh, different types of round bell feeders or what they call cradle feeders Um, and so the ones that have a cone and those cone feeders they tend to have the lowest wastage because the cows have they're pulling a bite of hay out of that cone and then but their head is still inside the feeder and so whatever gets dropped lands inside the feeder and can still be eaten. It doesn't get trampled um, compared to like a, a regular round bell feeder. They stick their head in, take a bite and they back up. And then whatever gets dropped, gets trampled into the mud the next time they step up there. Um, so some of those kind of things. Another way is to limit the amount of time cattle have. So if you limit the amount of time to like a third of a day or, or a quarter of a day. So some studies have looked at four to eight hours compared with 24 hours. And you can reduce the wastage by limiting the amount of time. That way, they're they're actually eating and not just kind of goofing around and playing with it. Um, but it, the the improvement with those with that methodology is not real big. Um, it's just it's a minor improvement. And if we talk about um, like we talked about last week, rolling it out or or putting it in a feeder, if you compare that. Rolling it out obviously has a a lot larger wastage than putting it in a a round bell feeder. But if you limit the supply uh, that you put out there, so if you just put out there enough for one day for them to eat, then the wastage is is a lot less than if you put out there two, three, four days of supply because they're going to lay in it and defecate on it and things like that. But if you only put out one day, they're going to eat most of it before they start to lay around in it and that kind of stuff.
3: We also talked about last week the mud, the drainage, right? That would be another way to, if you can put it on top of gravel or like you're saying, roll it out in it such that you're not wasting a lot that way as well. Any, you talked about time, both how much time they get, but also how much at a time do you feed? You know, you don't give them unlimited versus just feed them a little bit. So I'm thinking, you know, right when we started growing up, we, started feeding small squares and we would have to go out every morning and you put, you know, a third of, I think a third of a bale per cow. And of course it took a lot of time, but you know, I got kids and uh, labor was free. uh, At least from my dad's perspective versus I noticed as we started getting older and I graduated and left the house, everything went to big round bales then. And so any thoughts on the size, I guess, of the,
1: well, there's, there's a little bit of data that I've, I've seen comparing round bales uh, versus small square bales ver- and, and even having like like hay stacks out there in the field that you let them graze on. And depends on the method. If you're putting it in a uh, hay feeder, it doesn't make much difference what type of bale you've got, small squares or large round bales. But if you're putting it on the ground, the, the data seems to look like you get less wastage if you're Putting out small squares on the ground than it, rather than out rolling out large round bales. Um, so there might be some advantages there, but like you said, the labor is going to probably offset that imp- improvement in wastage. Depends
0: which, depends which resource you have there more or less,
1: labor or hay. I've got you know, a
3: quick question follow-up. You said stacks, haystack. What is a haystack?
1: I, I don't know that anybody ever does this anymore, but you just have a like real literally a stack of hay at you that you've you've piled it, it's not like bound together anyway. Um, but you know, some of the, and I haven't seen any data on this, but kind of a newer concept is what they call bale grazing. And so you just have brown bales positioned all across the field or the pasture or, or whatever. And so you move an electric fence uh, periodically and just let the cows have access to new set of round bales that you've got already uh, positioned out there in the pasture so you don't have to drive out there and carry round bales out there with a tractor or whatever and it's muddy and wet and that kind of stuff and i'm not sure what the wastage is there i guess it probably kind of back to the same thing if you limit the number of bales that you let them have at one time you can probably minimize the wastage whereas if you let them have access to a whole bunch of bales at one time they're probably going to waste a lot of it lay in it and and that kind of stuff
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think there's some real value to having a plan and then maybe having a backup for those days when it's muddy and when you can't get in and doing some things. So great discussion there, guys. And kind of ties in, as you were talking about labor, ties in directly to one of the other topics. And Dustin, you found a, a cool article that was talking about what they called the balancing act between when you work both on the farm and you've got a full-time
3: job in town what did you see in that article Dustin? So yeah there was an article I believe it was in Progressive Farmer it came out I don't know two three weeks ago uh, on kind of that balancing You like you're saying working off farm versus you know still having a small cow calf herd uh, kind of just brought me back to growing up mom worked at the bank dad worked at a factory in town and we, we had some cows I think as I've said, it's primarily just so to keep my sisters, my brother and I busy during the summer and also before and after school. But, you know, there's been some work done by the ERS, you know, 89% of our farms are small family farms. Uh, the average herd size is about 43, 44 head. And so definitely this is something, the article, like you said, it was, it was really a neat article because it talked about labor, right? Because you've got 40 plus hours that you're working off farm versus now you need to go home and you've got chores to tend to the cattle to tend to uh, talk to, I think about nutrition as well. And then some other things as well. So I know it was a interesting article. That's why I, I sent it to you guys just to get your take on it. Yeah. I think that's the,
0: that's the challenge with a lot of operations is that you you're working two full-time jobs, right? You, even though, and there's a certain level of cows that once you have that, it it's becomes pretty time consuming. And how do you allocate that labor? And I think, as much as anything, it's about that that true what they call the balancing act, right? How do you figure out when and where you want
2: to allocate that time? Yeah. And it, it kind of ties into, you know, I, we had a listener question, gosh, probably a month or so back about, you know, what he was wanting to make the jump from part time farming and full time working in town to full time farming. Um, and so, yeah, there is a, there's kind of a tipping point there with number of animals, right? Where um, they, it really does become a, a true full time job. And I guess from my perspective, you know, I've worked with a lot of small cow calf producers in my, my professional career and, and it is certainly can be done. Um, I think my one piece of advice is, you know, cows, cows are generally pretty resilient, but just be careful about putting things on autopilot because things do happen. And so, you know, a lot of the situations for their, you know, there's daily chores or whatever, like Dustin mentioned, you know, but having some eyes on those animals on a routine basis from a health perspective really does help your operation. And maybe, maybe Phillips has got some thoughts on the nutrition piece, but that's my, my one piece.
1: Brian, I guess you mentioned nutrition. And so, you know, I mean, that's the probably the biggest time-consuming thing is delivering feed to those animals especially this time of year if you're working a lot in town you've got to get hay out there at different times or supplement or those kind of things and so delivering feed can be a, a big time commitment this time of year and so that's something to think about is there ways that you can make this easier more time efficient and we mentioned in the last segment you know bale grazing might be one of those kind of things where you got the bales already positioned out there. You did that this last fall. And so now all you have to do is go out there and move electric fence every couple of days. So the cows have access to a new bale or something along those lines.
0: The the thing I would take home from that is tying those two conversations together. Give yourself a break, right? So Philip, you said Hey, if you use this kind of bale ring and you put the bale in the top and you're going to minimize hay wastage, and if you're doing bale grazing, you're you're probably going to waste more hay, but I can get it done, right? I don't have to be out there moving bales and putting things when I don't have time to do that, and I may want to put out, you said, if I only put out one day of feed, that's great. Well, there may be times I need to put out two or three days worth of feed and I just have to accept
1: I'm going to have some more wastage. So I can't do everything as efficient as possible,
0: but I can actually get it done.
1: Yeah, you know, especially this time of year when it's it's dark when you leave for work in town and it's dark when you get home from work in town, you know, your time to really do those kind of things is on the weekend. So you may have to put out there a week's supply of hay or whatever. And yeah. so if there's a trade-off there with your time management and and wastage of hay and feed.
0: Well, and I think that's okay. I think give, your, give yourself a break and, and not say, hey, I have to do everything perfect because you're getting it done. So it also at this time of year, and this is one of the things that people will talk about, uh, I'm gonna shift to thinking about frost seeding legumes. So legumes, often we think of, they're good at fixing nitrogen. They can be a good addition to augment. If I've got a grass pasture, of some sort having some legume growth in there. And so, and so I'll ask you, Philip, is this a good time to, to think about seeding them, putting them in the pasture? And, and what would you consider putting out there?
1: Brad, this is one time that, that we recommend that you can you can put legumes out there um, without having to do like some kind of soil prep or or those kind of things. And because you can just broadcast this the seed out there. And the idea is that as we start to warm up in the spring and we have a lot of fluctuation in temperatures here in coming up in, you know, mid to late February, then that fluctuating temperature causes the ground to heave. And and so we get that seed into the soil, but we got to be able to get the seed down to the soil. And there are certain types of legumes that are going to be better at this than others. We want something that is going to have a very, I'll say vigorous, um, seedling that's going to have a, it's probably got a large seed. It, it has a large seedling that can push its way up through the thatch of grass once um, we do get it down there, and and is going to be able to get started off very well and rooted well, so it can compete with the grass once the grass starts to come on, um, especially if you've got a, a cool season grass that's going to start coming on about the same time as the cool season legume.
0: So um, to follow that up, Philip, and and being sure it gets to the ground. So. If you have a patch of ground that still has lots of standing forage, whether it's good forage or not, but if it has lots of standard forage, this is harder than perhaps in that patch that you may have overgrazed. <laughs> this this is the one time that that overgrazing may actually be a benefit. Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, yeah, and and it, this is I've seen guys do this in uh, fescue pastures where they are strip grazing stockpiled fescue through the winter. They will go out there and spread the or broadcast the legume seed. And then as as the cattle strip graze across there, you get a lot of foot traffic and they eat the the, uh, thatch down. And so that foot traffic and stuff pushes that seed down to the soil and you get pretty good seed soil contact. So you get pretty good germination. And so that's one way to do it. I'm not sure how that would work in some other forage um, systems um, but it does seem to work well where you're stock or grazing stockpiled fescue through the winter
0: and then brian anything we need to so a lot of these legumes we're talking clover maybe some other types of legumes there but anything we need to worry about like bloat as we get into it if they're mixed in a pasture like that or is that something that you need to be cognizant of brian
2: it's certainly something to watch for um you know some of the lagoons can predispose animals to To bloat a little bit more, but you know, I think if they're if they're grazing these mixed pastures, they're they're probably a lot less likely than if they're they're grazing just that legume as the sole source of feed. But yeah, I mean, always always something to watch for in in those kind of situations. Yeah, so certainly
0: a time of year to consider it and take a look at your pastures and see what works in your area because. Not all legumes work in all areas and decide what that pasture, what you want that pasture mix to look like. But we've learned a a lot about looking at these pastures and even Philip and some of the research you did, having those multiple species there gives us some advantages to a pure monoculture pasture of just one type of grass. One of the other things, last week, Brian, you mentioned, uh, you talked about calf scours, you talked some about dehydration. The other thing I wanted to bring up, and and we'll hear about people at, at this time of year talking about uh, joint ill or navel ill. They say, well, that calf's got a joint ill, or that calf's got a navel ill. I may just first ask you,
2: what does that mean? Sure, yeah. I mean, we're we're probably into calving season in most parts of the country now, so it's you know it, those are things we talk about. So so joint ill, navel ill, they're they're kind of the same syndrome I guess um, but essentially what happens is if we have a we have a calf that's born into a usually it happens when you see it is you know the, the environment's not very clean and so um, there's a lot of exposure so when the when the calf is born and that placenta is removed from the calf so that gets separated either during the birthing process or it, if it's not then somebody ties it off and cuts it it's, it is a way for bacteria to get into that calf's body. And so if it's, you know, and so if it's navel ill, a lot of times what we'll see is we see an abscess right there at the navel, there the umbilicus. Um, and you know, the calf may have a fever, it's got a bacterial infection, but you know, that's one possible symptom that can happen. And that, abscess can be on the outside where we see it or the bacteria can actually travel up and there's a vein that connects the, uh, during during gestation, there's a vein that connects the navel and the umbilicus to the liver and those bacteria can travel up and, we, and that, that abscess can actually be inside the abdomen as well and, and up by the liver. And then sometimes what happens is the bacteria get into the calf through the navel um, and they get into the bloodstream and then they, they call what we call, they get what we call septicemia, which is a, a wide, it's a bacterial infection through the body. Um, and, and one of the possible sequelae of that is they set those bacteria set up in the calf's joints and it can be one joint. It can be multiple joints and it, it's a joint infection. So what we'll see is, you know, we see a, a large swollen joint. If you put your hand on it, that joint will feel hot they it's, they're painful. So they could be lame if they're up and moving around um, all of those things. And, and like you said, it's, they're all a little bit different symptoms of the same kind of core problem, which is, you know, calving in that unsanitary environment. And a lot of people's calving protocols will include, you know, dipping the navel or spraying the navel with an iodine solution. You know, that helps, that helps cut down on that, the amount of bacteria in that area. Uh, But it's not really a substitute for calving in a clean environment. And so we still encourage people. It's a numbers game is what you're saying. It becomes a numbers game, right? Yep. Yeah, you can can overwhelm any amount of disinfectant with a dirty enough environment. So we still encourage people to do that. Um, That's still good practice. And, you know, that navel, what will happen after birth is in the the placenta becomes separated, just like in people, that'll dry up eventually, right? And then it closes up and then it's no longer. So this is really a disease syndrome we see in very, very young calves, like the actual infection probably occurs within the first day or two of life. Uh, the abscess development or the joint L may take a little bit longer. So, you know, within the first couple of weeks of life is usually when we see all this happen.
0: And, and when you say clean environment, I just want to be sure we're on the same page because when I picture clean environment, I'm thinking even though there's manure, they're calving out on pasture, they're calving in big spaces. It, it, it is different than potentially if I have a calving stall in a barn that everybody on the farm calves in that same stall. And I don't change yeah. the
2: bedding, right? I mean yeah, it, you it, can it, Yeah, you can do the calving stall. You just you just have to be committed to changing the bedding in between and keeping it clean. Yeah, that that is correct. There's still going to be, there's going to be manure out on pasture and stuff, but those calving on pasture, clean calving stall, those kinds of things. uh, And it's usually because of that, it's usually, you know, it's something we'll see in one calf or a couple of calves. If you're seeing a lot of calves on your operation with naval ills or joint ills, you really should talk to a veterinarian about, you know, how do we manage this? Because it's, people will call it an outbreak, but it's not really an outbreak. It's, calves are just being the same calves are being exposed to the same dirty environment and, and it's a management issue. So.
0: so. So you go back to treating the problem systemically, which is I've got to control that environment rather than just treating those individual calves. Now, it, once in a while, you'll have a calf that it's, it's just a fluke, right? You may have a calf that he got exposed or happened to lay down in the wrong spot at the wrong time. And that individual gets it. But if you if you see this recurring on your operation, probably makes sense as as Brian mentioned to, to come have the vet come out
1: and take a look. Is that what you're saying, Brian?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Brian, I had a question. So we, we talk about the sand hills calving system to try to minimize scours. Would it also benefit this um, disease syndrome and trying to, to minimize the cases of, of naval ill and joint ill?
2: Yes. And understand, like even even systems that don't, even operations that don't use that system, naval ill, joint ill, that's a that's a really uncommon event. It should be a really uncommon event. So I don't I I don't know that that's the only system we would need to use. There there's a lot of other ways to manage around joint ill and naval ill. And like Brad said, we'll see we'll see individuals that have it. Um, and, and they're just kind of a fluke deal, and I, I don't know that I would get too—I I wouldn't get too deep into management for a, a single case that happens maybe once a year, every couple of years. It's—it's it's when you're starting to see multiple animals affected, then we get into maybe change our management a little bit.
0: Well, and, and Philip, you brought up the sandhills calving system, and we'll kind of dive into that next week. Talk a little bit more about what that is, what that what that could mean for your operation. But we we appreciate you joining us this week. And if you have any questions, comments, feedback for us, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.